nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is April 13th, 2010. Tuesday. Ah, 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 ah. Oh, the program that was on before me today got me all upset. I'm just all bothered, all fragmented. <laughs> I'm sorry, but the war on women is real, folks. Uh Femicide is not a hygiene spray. We're living in the 21st century. And I guess we call it backlash is definitely out there to crush us, to crush the feminine. Here come the guns, the tanks, the military. They've got the bombs and we've got the babies. Uh, anyway... I was going to start out and make my favorite jokes about men and women. You know, the men learn from the animals and the women learn from the plants, which is why men stand up and women sit down. We're going to hear this blathers from now till you know what freezes over. And <laughs> I, I've outgrown it. For decades now, I have transcended my pronoun envy. I have given up on the language. I've gone back to uh, primal politics. Um, I'm not interested in what happened in the 50s. I'm interested in what happened 5,000 years ago. We call that the Great Reversal. It was a time, well, you remember the Bronze Age. That was a fun time. That was when they figured out that it was more fun, you know, to fight, to have armaments. It's pretty exciting. But if you have read the great Maria Gimbutas, she wrote two books, The Language of the Goddess and The Civilization of the Goddess. Now, an awful lot of people, even wise intellectual folks, just wince when they hear that goddess stuff. They say, if you're not on the side of the... Uh, the gods, or the god of today, Jennifer. How could you possibly be jabbering about the goddess? And I'm not. I'm talking about culture. Uh, we all have images. We all have stories. Uh, we use the the language, the arts, everything, you know, to make pictures, pictures of ourselves, of what we feel like. Uh, it's not very complicated, people. You know, I remember the first time I saw one of those uh, goddess figurines, those dolls, they used to call them fertility symbols, you know. He had no head, no feet. It was nothing but bellies and breasts. I was revolted. 
It really made me sick. But I think eventually, bit by bit, year by year, I got the point. Uh, We're all of us babes at the breast. We are born, we live, we die. It's all very difficult. And uh, the great mother is the ultimate symbol. It's called the earth, Gaia. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. Uh, even, even the modern patriarchal gods got all that stuff straight last night. About two in the morning, for some reason or another, I snapped on the TV, and uh, it was John Huston's movie, The Bible. It's hilarious. It's back, uh, I think, in the 1960s was that movie. Anyway, it's got... Um, uh, Oh, there, what is it, uh, Ava Gardner, John, uh, was it, not John, John Houston does most of the voiceovers and he plays Noah. But the opening sequence has Adam and Eve running around naked and then, uh, uh, Cain and Abel, um, the great, uh, Richard Harris played Cain. He was pretty good, actually, uh, it's pretty interesting about Cain, where all the children of Cain, the mark of Cain. But then Eve had another, remember that third child, Seth? And it's one of his descendants that's Noah. So maybe, maybe Seth's descendants were some of the feminists. You know how that is, folks. It's like trying to divide up the bonobo apes from the chimps. <laughs> My most favorite. Uh, now, this is really a fragment here, but free association is my downfall if you are as old as I am you might remember a movie uh, called 1 million BC not the one with Raquel Welch but a very old one with Victor Mature it had two tribes and I remember reviewing it at great length one of these days uh, yes one of these days I'll uh, I'll dig out that review and read it to you maybe I can find it for next week uh it was about two tribes. There was a shell tribe, and then there was a mountain tribe. The people up in the hill, they were, they were, um, meat eaters. They killed animals and cooked them up. But the shell people, they were sea people. They lived by the seaside. And they were very sweet, and they cooked things in a big pot, and they passed the bowls around abalone shells, I think. And they fed the old folks first. They were socialists, you know how that goes. And they shared. <laughs> anyway, I think it's a little it's a little reductive to divide these two ways of thinking into masculine and feminine. That's to say there's a tendency. It is evident let's see, on today's TV we've got a show called Nurse Jackie. It, the second season has started up and last night. Nurse Jackie saved a patient with the use of marijuana. She's the feminist voice, the masculine voice. Well, there's a silly doctor. He's a stuffed shirt. There's another doctor who's a woman. She's from England. Dr. O'Brien, you must, if you don't have uh, showtime, I'm sure you can visit a friend and see it. It's called Nurse Jackie. Edie Falco from The Sopranos plays the lead. And uh, I am hooked, hooked, hooked. They've done a brilliant show on euthanasia. One of their old friends, a nurse, comes to the hospital and they help her to 
to leave uh, leave this plane. Uh, and they do it in a cooperative way. And the marijuana show last night, uh, the poor guys got a little uh, glass bomb, one of those little goodies. And Nurse Jackie, she she tucks it into an apple to show him how to use it. And the stuffed shirt doctor, he pretends to be hip, you know. He says he's not a prude, blah, blah, blah. But he won't give the guy what he needs. Uh, just gives him some poisonous uh, uh, antidepressants. And, uh, you know, um, it's a biofeedback plan. But check out Nurse Jackie if you want what I would call the progressive viewpoint on modern medicine. Nurse Jackie is also capable of, what's the word, um, putting on or uh, manipulating the insurance companies. It takes a certain kind of skill. <laughs> she... she uh, personalizes things. She goes right for the gut. You know, when she sees a picture on the bureaucrat's desk of a woman's child, she starts talking about the children and she gets what's needed by going for their their personal feelings. I'm looking here at the the New Yorker for April the fifth because um there's a piece on our health care bill here speaking of Feminine issues, yes. See, Nurse Jackie, is, yeah, she's the healer. <laughs> the, the doctor on the show, the woman doctor, she says she's a doctor because, um, you know, she took apart a rabbit with a butter knife when she was a kid. But that the nurses are the ones who know how to heal, how to bring about health, how to care for people. Now, the piece in the New Yorker's Talk of the Town explains to us how difficult it's going to be to get this health care plan to work. Last week I saw the black comedian Chris Rock on the Bill Maher show, and Bill Maher was being reductive as usual, and he said, isn't this health care plan, isn't this business uh, all about race, about the assault on President Obama? And Chris Rock said, well, he didn't know about that. Uh, his <laughs> black parents, he said, he said, well, when he was poor, he, Chris, uh, his dad died. His dad had some kind of, um, Chris didn't seem to know exactly what it was, some kind of ulcer broken in the matter of about 50 days. His father was dead. He said that. After he had money, he, Chris, had enough money to help. His mother had a worse, much worse medical condition, and she did not die. He said that's all he knows. He talked about the treatment his mother received, you know, like a fancy hotel. I'm glad he made the effort to explain that this is all about economic determinism. Anyway, in The New Yorker, there's a little piece explaining... Uh, how these things happen. Uh, the first thing they talk about is the Medicare bill back in 1965. <clears throat> I remember when that, when that came, uh, into being. The public memory, they say, uh, was, well, they say it was a smooth, smooth, popular program, you know, that it just slipped in there. But the fact is, Medicare, Faced a year of crippling rearguard attacks. <laughs> the American Medical Association, good old AMA, waged a war to stop Medicare. 
the doctors weren't about to abandon the fight against so-called socialized medicine Simply because, I mean, just because they made it a law. The Ohio Medical Association, with 10,000 physician members, declared that it would boycott Medicare. A nationwide movement began. Aha. And in 65, it was race that was the explosive issue. Many hospitals, especially in the South, were segregated at that time. Black and white, remember? Law required them to integrate in order to receive their Medicare dollars. Got it? Old George Wallace, Governor George Wallace down in Alabama, he was one of those who encouraged resistance. Oh, the original teabagger, I guess. Anyway, just two months before coverage was to begin, half the hospitals in a dozen southern states, still refused to meet Medicare certification. You got that? We're talking 65. Now, either of those boycotts would have destroyed the program, that is, the hospitals or the uh, doctors. Hundreds of thousands of elderly and black patients would have found the hospitals and doctors' offices closed to them. Okay, but there is a an account in a book called The Heart of Power, A Riveting History of Healthcare Politics. That's written by David Blumenthal and James A. Moroni, M-O-R-O-N-E, David Blumenthal and James Moroni. They recount the story in The Heart of Power, The Riveting History of Healthcare Politics. Old President Johnson recognized this was a threat. He outmaneuvered his opponents. Here's what he did with the doctors. He cajoled and he compromised, you know. He um, gave the AMA, the American Medical Association, a seat on an advisory council that oversaw the rules and regulations. You know how that goes. If they don't like it, put them in charge. Uh, He worked with this council on a series of 30 amendments to improve, improve the legislation. See that happening again. Okay. With hospitals, however, the president brooked no compromise. He convened a battle council of top advisors. (laughs) He even made vice president... Hubert Humphrey telephoned mayors all over the country to pressure resistant hospitals. There you go. We must send a note to President Obama and tell him to get Biden to set up a phone bank and make the phone calls. Anyway, uh, Johnson deployed hundreds of inspectors to make sure that participating hospitals integrated their wards. There was fury and acrimony in the final weeks before the start of Medicare, before the the, uh, law took hold, the hospitals decided to abandon segregation rather than lose the federal dollars. There you go, folks. It's all about the money. Follow the money. It was only then that Medicare was possible. Now, 
I don't know how that applies to the situation we're in today, but it looks to me pretty clear, yes. Gonna have to, President's gonna have to put his foot down. Um, the health reform bill that President Obama signed into law, uh, what was it, 10 days ago, <laughs> unmemorably named Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Yuck. Uh, now, this could prove as momentous as Medicare, with any luck, okay. But, according to Talk of the Town here, it says, most of its provisions, that is this new act, phase in more slowly than Medicare did. And they are even more vulnerable to attack. Of course, the context is different. Here we go. Uh, the Harvard School of Public Health points out that the war against health reform in 2010 has not been an interest group battle. Now, the AMA did endorse this legislation. Hospital associations were supportive. Once that public option thing was dropped, even the insurers favored the bill. The medical world will wage no civil resistance. This time the threat comes from party politics. <laughs> now, I think that's enough of talk with the town, but I was thinking as I read you some of this, uh, my favorite story was one of my father's uh, tales. He said that uh, Huey Long was the smartest of them all when Huey Long was governor down there. Louisiana, the, the game was... Um, Oh, I know how he integrated the wards. He, um, he, what he wanted to do was um, give employment jobs to the black nurses. And so he insisted that uh, they be given jobs because uh, he, he said he didn't want the white nurses taking care of black patients. Uh, yeah, that would work. Uh, I guess it would work. I guess I'm one of those people who does think we should do whatever works. It doesn't seem fair, of course, but uh, <laughs> whatever goes down. This copy of The New Yorker has a wonderful cartoon on this page. It's a picture of uh, a Republican and uh, Democratic uh, symbols, the donkey and the elephant. Okay, and the elephant is sitting on the examining table in one of those awful gowns you wear in the doctor's office, um, head in hands, you know, looking miserable, sitting there. is about to be examined by the proctologist. That's the donkey. Mm -hmm. uh, is putting on the glove there behind him with the stethoscope, the doctor. And uh, I guess, yeah, that's the Republican about to be examined by the Democrat. Oh dear, dear, dear! I think that I think we should blow up. I'm going to blow up this cartoon and send it off to the White House, <laughs> along with yes, along with all the wonderful stuff I want to send the Pope so that he understands about uh, the feminine principle and how he should how he should uh, engage with the women in his church. You know, ah, uh, uh, if he would just. Just listen to the nuns. They, they've been writing to him lately, and of course they know what it's all about. And they could, they could civilize uh, the Vatican. They could uh, take care of everything the same as the women could do uh, in um, 
not just Catholicism, but uh, the Islamic religion could stand some feminine uh, input. Um, anyway, talk of the town here. Let me see. That piece was written by Atul Gawande, A-T-U-L-G-A-W-A-N-D-E. Writes about healthcare reform, and he says that there's only one truly scary thing about health reform, and that is that far from being a government takeover, this time it's counting on local communities and clinicians for success. Okay, folks, it's a grassroots situation. He goes on to say that we are the ones to determine whether the costs are controlled and health care improves. That is to say, whether reform survives and the resistance is defeated. The voting is over and the country has many other issues that clamor for attention. But as, a, as LBJ would have recognized, the battle for health care reform has really only just begun. We're going to have to do this. Uh, I think it might be a good idea to talk to your own doctor, talk to everybody you know about this kind of thing. Uh, I find that most people have attitude, serious attitude on the subject. Uh, I remember once years ago talking to some physicians. Uh, I was employed by them. And it was their custom to uh, ask for payment up front from young women who wished... They, they had to get a note from the doctor, you know, in order to get an abortion. This was before Roe versus Wade. And uh, in order to get an abortion, you had to get all these uh, papers. You know, you had to do your paperwork and... Oh, I think the doctors charged a mere $50, which was expensive back in those days. And uh, uh, the idea was that uh, the women would only make one appointment. They would only come in once. And the doctors were afraid that they would go away and not pay their bills, so they wanted the cash up front. And I had to explain to these physicians that uh, this was not something that could be put off, that the uh, appointment had to be made at once, and permission had to be given so that these women could get on with their lives. And uh, I got my point across, and they were willing to see the patients without the money being uh, put down on the desk there. I, I shudder to think what we're going to have to go through to get this new this new deal working. Uh, I hope, I hope it goes as well as Medicare. I am one of those who is deeply grateful for Medicare. Uh, without it, I'm sure I'd be dead. Uh, <laughs> it's, what is it? It's um, cup half full, folks. Uh, for those of us with Medicare, we've lost our dental coverage. We've lost our... Uh, um, oh, the eyes, yes. I guess I'll have to do without my eyeglasses. I, I got a note. My doctor informed me the other day that I require trifocals. That's three levels of vision now. Trifocals. How about that? I think I'll just uh, do what I've been doing for the last year or two and take my glasses off and read things a couple of inches from my nose. <laughs> that seems to me the, the best the best ticket. Uh, I'm running out of time and I have so many things uh, to talk about today. I won't be on the air Thursday morning because we got a special Thursday. We're going to try to raise money and I'm so lousy at that. I'm ashamed. But uh, Thursday morning, 
I won't be on the air, and I was going to talk to you then about uh, this new show about New Orleans. Let me just quick refer you to something so you can look it up if you're interested. The New Yorker for April the 12th has a terrific review by Nancy Franklin. I'm getting used to Nancy Franklin. Sometimes she irritates me, but mostly she has smart things to say about what's on television. Uh, the article is called After the Flood. She's writing about the guys who created The Wire. And uh, this new show takes place in New Orleans. And it's all about the wreckage and renewal. You know how that uh, goes. Uh, the show is called Treme, T-R-E-M-E. Some people put an accent over the last E. I can never pronounce it. It's an HBO series, and uh, I have seen some, let's see, she's seen the three first episodes. So she should have a pretty good idea what it's about. Um she says that, uh, well, it starts out, you know, it starts out with a three months later note. And that means, of course, three months after the catastrophe of 2005. Uh, it's created by the guys who did The Wire, David Simon and Eric Overmeyer. Uh, now, he's a writer on Law and Order, producer. He also did Homicide Life on the Street, and uh, these are these are, I guess I would call it top drawer, super, super HBO writers and thinkers. It's amazing, folks. This is this is the American theater now, HBO. I know it doesn't sound right for us to be pushing <laughs> this network on KPFA, but I'm a theater person, and I have to admit that I am hooked. On home box office. Uh, anyway, um, Nancy Franklin writes that the approach these filmmakers use is fitting for New Orleans, especially post-Katrina. They, she says that the filmmakers get under the city's skin. It's one thing to take us to New Orleans. Anyone can do that. But not everyone can take us inside New Orleans. Uh, now... One of the writers is a former city reporter for the Baltimore Sun. He's spoken of his love for New Orleans music and his feeling about the importance of the city. Overmeyer, the other writer, is also a playwright, and he lives there part-time. Now, they had been working on a series about New Orleans even before Hurricane Katrina. That seems to me impressive. Uh... Most of the young people I know think that The Wire, their earlier show, is just about the best thing we've had on television in the last decade. Uh, I'd pick Rome, but that's because I'm a history buff all the way. Uh, anyway, I think that uh, this show is not what I would call, it doesn't have a political axe to grind. It's... Uh, it's all very complex, at least according to Nancy. Uh, I got that feeling, too. It starts out with a lot of collage. You know, the kind of visuals. Um, the camera is fascinated by a thousand little things. Uh, I don't know. It says that you don't always know what you're looking at. Um, one guy... Yes, I, I love the character who jumps out of bed in the morning and he calls out, yeah, he calls out that, uh, 
right, he calls out that there's a rebirth. Well, in case you didn't know, there's actually um, uh, a band that's called Rebirth. <laughs> uh, and, uh, oh, there's my music, folks. Let me tell you one more time. To check out this incredible show, After the Flood is the name of the article. The show is called Trine on HBO. Nancy Franklin has written a nice article all about the actors and the creators of this show. Um, one of the producers died last, oh, about ten days ago, and this has, this has, um, upset the cast and crew but uh it's a real mind bender uh my favorite is the woman <laughs> yeah the woman who comes in the first episode and says i married a goddamn musician ain't no way to make that s right <laughs> this has been jennifer stone i'll be back on the air next tuesday till then go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can KPFA at 61 has been here, there, and everywhere. And KPFA has taken its listeners along every step of the way through music, literature, and news. Tune in to KPFA as we celebrate 61 years of broadcasting on Thursday, April 15th. Rediscover vintage KPFA programming and a few surprises on the special day of fundraising. KPFA at 61 going strong, and looking forward to many more years of taking our listeners here, there, and everywhere. The journey continues. Tune in on Thursday, April 15th, and show your support for listener-sponsored free speech radio, KPFA.